Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. In this country, I think we are very, very good at doing studies and we're very, very good at trying to get a better handle on what works and what doesn't. And the things that have changed are obviously technologies um, come to the fore, but when you come back to the basic framework of suicide prevention, it has not changed since VicHealth put together their green book back in 1997. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, and what a big week it has been in football. This week, I'm pleased to bring you my conversation with Jane Burns. If you've been involved in anything mental health or science, research, or innovation, you've surely heard of Jane. She's a true trailblazer. Jane is an international expert in mental health and wellbeing, suicide prevention, digital transformation, and integrated models of care. I'll pick just a few highlights from Jane's extensive CV, otherwise it might take me all episode. Jane was integral to the founding and early success of Beyond Blue in the the early noughties and then went on to work at reachout.com. She then founded the Young and Well CRC, which is a collaborative research centre. After that, Jane founded InnerWell, a collaborative venture between PwC, the world's leading professional services firm, and the University of Sydney, Australia's leading higher education and research university. Jane is now self-employed, working as a consultant, where she is passionate about helping industry, government, and the profit-for-purpose sector work in partnership to solve large-scale societal problems. Jane is also chair of Social Enterprise Street and a board director at the NDIA, National Disability Insurance Agency, and InnerWell. This was a great conversation with Jane, where we discuss a fascinating career journey, mental health and well-being, living a balanced, busy life, her role as a director at many important not-for-profits and social enterprises. And on another note, I just want to shout out Jane as being a truly terrific human being. When my story broke in the age last week, which I'll post in the show notes again, Jane was one of the first people to call me to ask if I was okay. And bear in mind, we'd only met once prior to recording the podcast. So thank you, Jane, uh, for being a great support and uh, really looking forward to uh, sharing our conversation. So I hope everyone enjoys that conversation as much as I enjoyed creating it with Jane. So I am absolutely thrilled to have Jane Burns here with me. Welcome, Jane. Lovely to be here. You made it all the way from Q, so thank you. As I said, it's great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd love to just, I mean, there's so much to talk about in this episode. I think mental health, well-being, um, bringing together group interest groups to create social change, social enterprise. But I think I'd like to start with you telling me a bit about your journey in your own words to how you got to where we are today. Yeah, okay. So I started as an academic, um, country kid from South Australia, uh, came across to Melbourne 23 years ago, Royal Children's Hospital, and I was working on the Suicide Prevention Literature Review for the National Health and Medical Research Council. Looking at all these papers, wrote the review, and then suddenly had this moment of, I don't want to be an academic. Um, you know, papers are great, but how do you actually really make a difference in the world? And um, I went to a conference at which Ian Hickey was talking, and I looked at him and I thought, I want to work with that bloke. Went up to him, introduced myself. I don't think he knew me from a bar of soap. Um, <laughs> But I then followed up and kept following up and eventually um, I went across and did the startup Beyond Blue with Ian. So my, you know, I'd never worked in a 
an organisation that had a board. I knew nothing about industry. I knew nothing about, you know, I was an academic. Um, and my job there was to set up the youth agenda and the public health agenda. So my first partnership was with the AFL. I then went on to do the um, Beyond Blue Schools Research Initiative, um, set up uh, YB Blue Crew, which was the first real, I suppose, opportunity to bring young people um to really design a program. And at that stage, I was working also with reachout.com, which is uh, Jack Heath and John O'Nicholas's um, startup back then in, you know, 1997, they started, which was focused on technology. So I became really interested and passionate about, well, how do you think of technology as a, a solution to the way in which we can engage uh, young people? And so that then led, I went across to the States for a year, looked at their models, which were very much wait until someone breaks oh, <laughs> and get them into care, um, and then came back and met up with Jack again. And uh, I was in Sydney at the time, and he convinced me to come across and join him with Jono at the Inspire Foundation to take Reach Out across into the US and uh, into Ireland, which we worked on. It was the three Js. Um, and then as I was at that stage, I, I was I had Angus, my eldest, and he was born with Down syndrome. So I you know, it suddenly became this very, wow, um, what am I doing with my life? Moved back to Melbourne to be closer to family um, and then uh, found out I was uh, pregnant with Holly and as I was about to go on maternity leave with Holly, I got a phone call from, I think it was Marty Garvin, I can't remember, but one of the Inspire board members to say, would you be interested in leading a cooperative research centre bid? Knew nothing about them, absolutely nothing other than that predominantly older, um, you know, end of career learned academics, um, you know, taking on a big industry challenge. So I said, I'll think about it. I'll go, you know, go on maternity leave, see if there's scope for this thing. And I did that. And as I looked into it more, I became convinced that, yeah, we would stand a chance to get the thing funded. Came back from maternity leave, found out I was pregnant with my third baby. So I'll make a joke that I do my best work when I am pregnant. I was going to say, it seems like there's a bit of a pattern there. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, and within six months, put together a bid. So, you know, you'll know these people. Michelle Blanchard, who's now at Sane, um, worked with Pip Collin, who's at uh, University of Western Sydney, Amanda Third also. Um, but it was a tiny team, the four of us just, you know, putting together this bid, did a capital raise of $6.9 million, took it to the government, um, uh, didn't, you know, I thought a uh, chance of getting it funded probably 50%, um, and then had Harry um, and got a phone call. I think he was about four weeks old to say, you've been shortlisted and come to Canberra to pitch. For the CRC? For the CRC. Wow. Which we did. So I went to Canberra with a, with a baby and with 10 of, um, you know, Australia's leading lights. So Pat McGorry was there, Helen Christensen, Ian Hickey. Um, but what was really different about the pitch and I was so glad that we did it. We had Bronte O'Brien, who was this incredible young woman who lives with bipolar disorder. And we'd been in, really engaged with young people the whole way through. And Mark Mentha, who was the chair, so quarter Mentha, you know, very mm -hmm. corporate guy. Mm -hmm. um, I said to him, you intro, but let's get Bronte to open. And she did. And it was just, I, I, it's one of those times where you walk out of something and you think, I could not have done a better pitch. You know, two hours of pitching, uh, walk out to a screaming hungry baby who needed to be fed, um, but I couldn't have been prouder. And eventually, I think the day of the Vic Health AGMs, I remember it perfectly because I was, you know, exhausted, breastfeeding, all of those things <laughs> that go with it. 
And I got the phone call to say, and it was very, very matter of fact, um, it's blah, blah from the Department of Industry and Innovation, I think it was called back then, um, you've been awarded $27.5 million. And that was the start of Young and Well. How do you, how do you react to a phone call like that? I can tell you I was pretty excited, <laughs> but I wasn't allowed to tell anyone. Um, so I told Michelle, we went to the Vic Health AGM and I think within a week it was announced. And it was, I think, probably the groundswell of this whole idea of co-design, co-creation, living laboratories, Amanda and Pip, you know, that was their bread and butter. Um, we had over the course of that five years, a brains trust of young people each year. Those young people were absolutely fundamental to the way the organisation was structured, the way it, it lived its values, the projects that came out of it. Um, they were just core um, aspects of how we ran that business. And it's probably looking you know, back, this is a decade ago, the resources, the tools, um, the concepts, you know, online wellbeing centres, um, apps and e-tools that, that really focused on what's going on for young people in their lives, um, online clinics, um, you know, this whole concept of how do you bring and build out ecosystems to support wellbeing um, from the go-get right through to clinical care. Um, and again, I look at it and I think, you know, it, it was a revolution um, and the young people made it that way. You know, they worked really closely with the scientists but we had an incredible board and Mentha is an incredible chairman. His whole thing was corporate governance and you know, I'd never been a CEO. I'd had no clue as to how to get something like that up and running um, but it just came together. The, it had the magic ingredients of all of it, 75 partners, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Telstra back in, you know, that this is before technology became what it is today um, and the sector came together, so the youth mental health sector, from Beyond Blue to Lifeline to Kids Helpline to Reach Out had led it. Um, Origin were there, you know. Um, we brought in Smiling Mind and Batir and, um, you know, uh, Hello Sunday Morning had just it, it had really just started. So Jamie Moore, who um, was kicking that off, um, was one of our Youth Brains Trust members. Like it was just this whole excitement about. Sounds like a revolution. It was, yeah, it was excitement about young people and the capacity that they had. And it was about strengths and it was about building their capacity to be the best they very, you know, the very best they could be regardless of whether they were living with a mental illness or not. Let me stop you in your tracks because there's a lot more to your journey to go. But, <laughs> I feel like I'm talking. <laughs> no, I, just, I, I want to give you a rest and give you yeah. a chop out. But I do want to ask you sort of given all that you've experienced and all that you know and your, your life experience um, and the totality of your career experience, what does good mental health sort of mean to you and feel like, sound like, lived? Yeah, look, and it's. A really good question because I think if we had one solution to it, everyone would be living it. So what is right for you may not be right for me. So when you look at the evidence and you look about at the things that are actually really going to make a difference in a person's life, it's socially connecting, so feeling that you can connect to someone um, and feeling valued and being able to participate. You know That came out of all the work that VicHealth did back in the late 90s. That has not changed. It's managing your stresses. Um, so we all know there are stresses in our life. There's, you can't control that, um, but it's how you respond to them. And increasingly I think the mindfulness, you know, sort of really looking after yourself, really sort of being able to breathe, um, you know, that that is getting a lot of momentum. The evidence is pretty clear cut that that actually is good for your mental health. And then I come back to I think the three key ingredients, um, good sleep, <laughs> And, you know, you talk to anyone who lives with anxiety, 
Um, sleep is, you know, is the number one kicker. Um, good diet, and increasingly there's, you know, a lot of evidence around Mediterranean diet and good diets and gut and brain and the connection with that, and then physical activity. And it's physical activity because it's good for your your body and your brain, um, but it's also you're getting out into the sunshine and you you're actually, you know, connecting with nature. Um, and so, are you a runner? Yeah. Okay, tell me about that. <laughs> so I started running um, oh, probably, oh God, it's going to show my age, but I started doing 5Ks and then I got into 10Ks and then I decided to do the Melbourne Marathon um, back in, oh, oh, I can't even remember, 2000. Um, I don't know if I was, it might have even been before then. And it's the endorphin that comes from it. So I use it as my think time. I use it as my reflection time. Um, and if I come back to sort of that Jack Heath and, you know, it sort of ties into how do you actually give yourself space to think and to breathe and to just get out and, and be physically active. Um, and so some runners or running purists say that you should not listen to anything while you run. <laughs> what do you do? No, I listen to music. Yep, I think you have to. Uh, look, and again, one of the great things that came out of Young and Well was um, Music Escape, which was, you know, music and mood. They go hand in hand. So a lot of the conversations of co-design with veterans have been, you know, they'll use music to self-modulate, mm. they'll use music to um, get them out and get, get active, they'll play the drums, they'll, you know, it, there's so much to that aspect. It changes. It's, it's like a noticeable change that you yeah. feel from listening to music. Like th- this afternoon I had a pretty rocky afternoon and wasn't feeling the best and I put on this Breaking Hits playlist from Spotify yeah. and I felt fantastic. Yeah. Look, and again, uh, one of the guys that I'm working with over in the States, um, Evian Gordon, uh, Total Brain, they've partnered up with a, a m- musical producer. That link between brain and mind and music and mood it just seems so logical and yet we often don't think about how we might use that to help ourselves. Well, I think especially now that everyone's working remotely or not really quite back at work yet, um, there's a lot of people who are at home alone and, like, they should just be having great music on all the time to help them. Yep. Like, like between those annoying Zoom meetings that everyone has to have, you know. (laughs) I think they should start the Zoom meeting with music and end it with music. (laughs) I think you should start the Zoom meeting by discussing what music you're listening to and that would be a good, like, icebreaker. Well, that's hilarious because we, um, again, do a bit of work with um, the uh, Applied Positive Psychology Learning Institute and we did a New South Wales Treasury um, co-design session a few weeks ago and we started the session with music. You know, what music do you listen to? And it's a a leveller because you eventually find – there's common interests, there's different interests, there's music that you haven't heard of that you think, oh, well, I might go and check that out. Um, and it really does create that social connection. Even if you can't connect physically, you can connect through music. I found myself for a long time burying myself in podcasts and audiobooks, which was very intellectually nourishing, but didn't offer me the same emotional um, elevation as music does. So I'm, I'm actually very happy to be back and engaged in that Spotify kind of world. Yeah. No, look, I, I and again, to about a personal reflection, but um, Angus, my oldest, as I've said to you, has Down syndrome, autism, is nonverbal, but music is absolutely his go-to. So he's he's obsessed with air at the moment. He sits and listens to it and, you know, he's singing, but he's not singing. He's, you know, moaning away. Um, but it's really interesting to see that being my connection with him as well. So, you know, I don't feel too concerned about dancing around in the house with the kids and it just elevates the mood, lifts the mood and you can have a conversation with them that's not terrifying. You know, it's not 
mental illness is this. It's this is how you actually look after your mood. This is how you look after yourself. And do you, do you think much about like how could we use music in a more therapeutic setting as well to make it um, less like stressful situations, less stressful for people? Absolutely. Like, you know, go to your GP or you go to a specialist, um, you go to a psychiatrist or your psychologist. It's interesting to me that music isn't already being employed to kind of disarm you a little bit. And again, I think Music Escape, and I tried to find the app the other day and it's, it no longer exists, but when we were doing Young and Well, Michael Cargreg, who's, um, who was heading up our digital education uh, work, was really talking about how as a clinician you could use that as a tool um, to have a conversation with a young person, um, to get them to think about their regulation of their mood, to get them to think about how they might use those playlists to take them from, you know, it was from know, feeling angry down into feeling um, calm or feeling sad into a happier happier place. And, again, it's not the music on its own. It's actually how you blend those two approaches to actually have a conversation about how to use tools and resources that are your everyday go-to practices. We could keep talking about music for hours, but I want to... I know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pivot slightly. And this might sound like a stupid question on its face and I think some of the better questions often do initially sound a bit stupid but why was it important for you to focus on suicide prevention as sort of a a key area of study? So when I went through university um, and again I I was a country kid from Port Pirie so I was given the choice of arts or science and girls did arts and boys did science and I came into it and there was this thing called psychology and I said, I want to do that. That sounds really interesting. I like people, I like mind, all of that. And so I went through, did my psychology degree and then um, found myself with an opportunity to do my honours, which I did looking at the effect of lead on kids' behaviour and um, intellect. Did 375 psychological assessments, um, wrote the PhD um, and very quickly realised that I didn't want to work in lead exposure, um, and came across to Melbourne and met up with Frank Oberclay, George Patton, um, who were both at the Royal Children's Hospital. And um, both are exceptional. Um, and said, okay, that's I want to work in mental health. Um, I had uh, a family who had fostered children and young people who lived with schizophrenia. So I had a real passion for it and a real interest in it. And it just transformed by that at that stage the Gatehouse Project, which is a schools-based intervention to prevent suicide, was getting up and running, funded by Vic Health, and this NHMRC review was being done. And so I found myself working in this space of suicide prevention. And if I come back to the terrifying statistic at that stage was that New Zealand and Australia had the highest rates of suicide, and it just didn't make any sense to me. You know, we've got these this beautiful country and all of these things, and I was looking at both the protective factors and the risk factors and how you could reduce risk and enhance protective factors. And it just became then a, a lifelong passion to sort of say, okay, well, how do you do that? What does it look like from an environmental perspective? Which brings me back to the lead study because that's what it was all about, reduce lead exposure and en- enhance the things that are going to ensure that kids cognitively can um, flourish. So that was the sort of background and the history. So I've had this weird mesh of psychiatry and psychology and medicine and uh, public health and it just came together at the right time and then obviously the opportunities present around you know where do you get to do a startup like beyond blue um, nowhere else in the world you know it's incredible where Australia's been brilliant you know where on our 
where else in the world has there been reach out as a service? Like started mm. in 1997, that's, you know, 24 years ago. It's incredible. So there's been a passion and an interest but also finding your tribe and mixing with like-minded people who actually really want to do something to change the world. And so after all these years, what can we say now about the state of play in suicide prevention or the body of knowledge um, now that we perhaps didn't know back then? In this country, I think we are very, very good at doing studies and we're very, very good at trying to get a better handle on what works and what doesn't. And the things that have changed are obviously technologies um, come to the fore, but when you come back to the basic framework of suicide prevention, it has not changed since Vic Health put together their green book back in 1997, which was really around reduced risk and enhanced protective factors. And then there was another book, which was the Bible, which was the Institutes of Medicine's Preventative Interventions for Mental Disorders, I think it was called back then. And it was very much around that, all the things I've talked about. So, you know, the strengths that people have, the capacity that they have to thrive, um, the capacity of humans to care for each other, um, that, that sense of kindness and gratitude. And, and so that, that evidence base has grown, but it's still as, it's probably stronger than it has ever been. What we're not good at is implementation and we're certainly not good at prevention. We wait until someone becomes unwell and then we ask them to ring a telephone hotline or, you know, go into a clinic. Um, what we haven't nailed and what I'm, again, really passionate about and have been working on for the last, you know, sort of since Young and Well wound up is how do we prevent and keep people mentally fit, healthy and well? And if they do become unwell, how do we get them into care earlier? And how do you ensure that they get high quality care um, that actually meets their needs and that you actually make sure that you get the right clinician with the right person because you don't want, you know, a clinician who's highly skilled and trained working with someone who has um, moderate depression or, or you know, generalised anxiety. You want, you know, you want to mix and match and make sure that the person gets the highest quality care. And you want to measure that it actually works. So don't keep doing the things that, you know, actually make no difference whatsoever. <laughs> Which we all too often do. Um, one of the biggest challenges working in the mental health space is how to bring different sector partners together to leverage change and to maybe accelerate change and progress. I wonder if you could talk a bit about sort of the formation of InnerWell and how you're able to sort of work with PwC and Sydney University yeah. to make that happen. Yeah, so InnerWell came off the back of Young and Well. So again, uh, Young and Well was five-year defined funding um, funded by the government through a cooperative research centre. The spin-out of then InnerWell, which was PwC and the University of Sydney, was the next iteration of how do you build on the great R&D that's been done but take it to scale and make sure that you put it into um, a model that makes sense um, to take both in Australia and globally um, to the rest of the world. So the bringing together of PwC and, and University of Sydney made logical sense. You know, you've got an entity that, that understands commercialisation. You've got great researchers at the University of Sydney. But when it actually came to the practical and it's been, you know, it's a, it's a tough um, tough gig to get a collection of research and commercial together. Um, and if we can solve for that, I think there's so much sitting in universities that we can unlock that's not being utilised in, you know, sort of the in the rest of the world. So is that a matter of how to do commercialisation well? 
I think it's both. I think it's how do you actually commercialise good ideas that have been proven to be effective in a research trial and how do you take them to scale? And what we're not good at in Australia is the implementation of our science. Mm. So the example I gave of Total Brain, um, Evian, 20 years of his work, he's had to take it across to San Fran to get the company listed um, as an ASX. The companies he's got over in America are the Kaiser Permanentes, the Boeings, um, Cerner, um, OneMind, um, you know, incredible big global companies, um, but he couldn't couldn't make it happen in Australia. Um, so I think we need to get better at supporting our researchers to think commercially and match up our industries with our researchers. And so, again, that's, you know, obviously a passion area of mine. It's why I love cooperative research centres so much. Let's pivot a little bit to some of the things that you do outside of suicide prevention and mental health, because I think you've got an amazing spread of things that you're doing. You are a NDIA board member. So I'd love to ask you about how the NDIS rollout's going and maybe challenges, opportunities. Yep. So it's, what are we up to? Seven, eight years. Um, So imagine the biggest systems change you could ever possibly conceptualise, and that's what the NDIS is trying to achieve. Principles are person-centric choice and control, and how do I create a package for myself? So if I'm Angus, how do I create? So Angus's needs are quite complex. How do you actually build out a package of support that enables him to live the best life he could possibly live. And, you know, if I come back to the basics, you know, I want him to go to school, I eventually want him to have a job and hopefully not live at home for the rest of his life. <laughs> they're the basic, you know, they're the things that are good for your mental health, but they're also good for, you know, humans um, and human capacity building. So think about doing that for one person and then times that by, you know, the number of, you know, half a million people that they're they're trying to support. Um, There's the onboarding of people, there's matching services to people's needs. Um, So it's challenging, you know, and it's, 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 there are always going to be lessons to be learnt from it and improvements to be made. And if I look at the improvements, so I'm, you know, I'm a data person, I like to look at the things that, you know, is, is this making a difference in people's lives? And the stories that you hear about the successes of the difference that it's made in people's lives are absolutely incredible. Um, I talk about my own personal experience, but also, you know, you you look at some of the case studies that they're showcasing, um, you know, people who've never had jobs have got jobs. Um, People who've never lived independently live independently. Um, Is it perfect? No, absolutely not. Um, There's a lot that needs to sort of continue to evolve and change. And that's certainly on the agenda of the board um, and of the exec and of the teams that actually support, um, support it. But it can't be the responsibility of just the government. It has to be the responsibility of the sector and the sector changing to meet the needs of people and making sure that the services that they provide are actually highest quality. And I come back to consistently, and I say this in mental health, but I think it's true in disability, measure outcomes and base performance around outcomes, not uh, just funding something for the sake of funding it. Very well said. Um, you're also the chair of Street, yes. the social enterprise behemoth, uh, and we've had Beck Scott on the podcast before who was a fantastic guest. So I'd love to ask you a bit about what's happening at Street, um, challenges, opportunities, and how has COVID impacted on um, business? Yeah, look, I mean, Street is 
again, not to have favourites, but it is an absolute, you know, incredible social enterprise. Started again a decade ago. Um, it's been the, you know, held up as the, you know, how to do social enterprise. And Beck and Kate and that team have always looked at a model of generosity. And so they come at it from a how do we build an ecosystem of social enterprises that are actually solving massive problems. And so street being a decade old, you know, it, it started with very much a simple idea of a streetcar and employment for a young person. It's evolved into uh, Cromwell Street is sort of the mothership, <laughs> for want of a better word, and the next decade is really focused on people and planet. So how do you not only think about supporting a young person to get a job because that's absolutely critical to their mental health and their well-being and breaking that cycle of poverty or homelessness but then how do you also build out other ways of working that actually support the people and planet so this concept of green jobs um, closed economies um, working more closely around the ESG goals and and thinking well actually it's not just about people it's how do we interface with nature and, and the planet and I think we're all excited about that. We're passionate about young people. Um, but bringing that passion around young people and planet to play, the street model's beautiful. It's a, it's literally wraps its arm around, arms around young people, but true it wrap around. it's true wraparound, but it doesn't make them a victim. It makes them, it, you know, you look at all the data and the, there's study after study after study. They've partnered with the universities. Um, it really is about empowering young people to believe that they can. Um, achieve whatever they set their mind to. And again, you know, I go every now and again to the, some of the graduation ceremonies. Um, it is truly inspirational to see where someone had started to where they have finished and the confidence that comes from really wrapping your arms around in a, you know, metaphorical way, young people, because they have such incredible capacity. That's beautiful. So you're doing a whole range of fascinating things and now you're doing consulting. So I'd love to hear a bit about um, why you decided you wanted to become a consultant and how that's all going for you. Yeah, look, I, the consulting is really interesting. So it means I can work with like-minded organisations. Um, so I started initially, my first major consulting gig was with Bupa. Um, it was really to look at um, how you could create a model of mental health care uh, for Joint Health Command. So that I came in, did incredibly intense work, um, bringing all of the knowledge, the evidence, and putting it to, to uh, into a practical application for a you know a Joint Health Command. So that was the first piece of work, and then so pivoting on that, I sort of started to look at um, Second Muse was another one. Um, they're a big global company. They wanted to do a headstream accelerator went across to uh, Boston and we ran a co-design workshop session with those guys. So I'm really carefully choosing who I work with and it's not that I want to be a consultant, it's that I am absolutely obsessed with building out this ecosystem of support and care from wellbeing right through to critical care. So, for example, the guys that I'm working with at the moment, um, Readiness, which is Jerry Ryan's group, um, they've created a concierge system which basically says let's take all of the elements that are great from the content that's created across, across you know, amazing organisations like Smiling Mind, um, the um, uh, Batia, you know, and they've basically said we're going to white label it and make it available to schools and workplaces, um, which, again, it's philosophically aligned with no one owns this space and no one should own this space. 
this is a major challenge that can't be solved with one organisation alone. So the readiness, guys, I love that because it's actually an ecosystem that's looking at building out a digital solution that's linked to peer-to-peer support work. Um, another one, for example, Together AI. Um, you know, back in the day when we did Young and Well, we were trying to solve for cyber safety. How do you get young people to have a conversation with adults that allows them to be safe and well online? Um, and we physically had to do that, um, you know, sit young people at a computer with an older person and, and it was a living lab back in its day. You know, we did it out of the Inspire office funded by Google. The model now is how do you get an AI that can actually create an opportunity to showcase when someone might be at risk? So it might be facial recognition, it might be um, some of the content that they've seen and the technology is smart now so you can do that. But how do you then surface that so that young person is flagged with parent to have a conversation and to have it in a safe and respectful way. So what's happened in the cyber safety world is a lot of it's been, you know, blocking or parental control. And we know that young people are really smart and they know how to get around that. So this is a much, I think, smarter way of thinking about creating conversations that are actually going to change children and young people's behaviour and help their parents understand because, you know, we're, we're behind the apple, we just don't know have that conversation about safety. Um, another one which is great, and again, in the disability space, Akin, which is um, Lisa Yearsley, incredible entrepreneur. Um, she's done a lot in fintech, um, has sold, you know, three or four companies. She's come back to Australia and she actually wants to create um, an AI that supports people to make good decisions about how to manage their home. So, you know, good food, um, managing a diary, you know, the things that, that just take up a lot of time that an AI could potentially do for us. So her AI really is about smart tech and um, supporting families so they can get to spend more time to get and do the things that they want rather than having to go to the supermarket and do the supermarket shop. Sounds like you've taken to consulting like a duck to water, proverbially speaking. Um, have you had to change much about how you operate as a person or how you do things to sort of meet that the demands of consulting? Look, not really. I've always been lucky enough to have um, boards and chairs that have allowed for and have enabled me to be engaged enough that I can be flexible. So I love flexible working. I can work from anywhere. I can work on a you know a plane at, at a coffee shop. Um, Do you like to work from coffee shops? Love working from coffee shops. Me too. Yep. And consulting's not any different to that. It's sort of, I, I think what's really interesting is, you know, I loved Young and Well. I think it was probably one of the greatest organisations in existence. Me too. But the consulting allows me to do all of that without the structure of yeah. a CRC. Yeah. So it's not dissimilar. I think the CRC model makes sense to me. It's industry coming together with academia, with um, supporting the small to medium enterprise sector to get up and running. Um, I'm trying to do that, but from a consulting perspective. Let's change tack slightly. I wanted to sort of end by asking you a bit about your own daily self-care routine. So from the morning you wake up to when you go to bed, um, you probably already mentioned some of the key principles earlier, but just curious um, behaviours, routines, habits or things that you've done that have helped you and continue to do. Yeah. So, I mean, running is is my number one go-to, music and and dancing. Um, Before COVID, I was, you know, the YMCA and I, I, again, I, I think it's a beautiful example of community. Um, and so 
I'd go to the YMCA, do a, you know, it might be a Zumba class, it might be a cycle class. Um, but it was always that sense of, and I remember going to one Zumba class and they had obviously two people with Down syndrome who'd come in with their carers to do that class. And the energy in that room was just incredible. Um, I'm very, very, very close with uh, my family. So my kids are, you know, absolutely everything to me. Um, and I have a great friendship network. So I love, uh, and I'm social, so I love catching up. So COVID for me was not particularly pleasant. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I put myself in that camp too. <laughs> to, and, you know, all the things that I like to do that keep me sort of stimulated and mentally healthy um, are things that you couldn't do during COVID. So mm. COVID was really challenging. I was running every day. I fell over and fractured my shoulder. So then I was in just this horrendous space. Um, but I kept connecting in with family, friends. Um, but I'd say anyone who says their mental health um, didn't get a battering during COVID um, is a very lucky person. Um, or they're lying. <laughs> they're lying. <laughs> well, I've heard Samuel Johnson say that it was the greatest thing that's happened to him. So You know, introverts, I've, I found a lot of introverts loved COVID. Yeah. Um, and it's just it, it just blows my mind that that's a thing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. you know, we live in a diverse and wonderful planet, exactly. so there you go. Yeah, but I think, I think those key things of just getting out, getting active and staying connected, and it comes back to the principles of what actually keeps you mentally healthy, fit and well. And, again, I don't practice mindfulness as such, but I've, you know, I've, Smiling Minds, obviously one of the great um, startups out of uh, Australia. Once you've learnt the techniques, and I think that's the the key to it, you know, sort of just sitting and, I don't know, enjoying a nice cup of tea or, you know, going out and getting some sunshine and actually feeling the sunshine and, you know, really getting your head around, actually, I just need to take some time out to breathe and feel okay. So this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much again for dropping in. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? So connect on LinkedIn, I think, is probably just how we connected. Yep. <laughs> so it's a consultant way. <laughs> it is a consultant way. I also, I mean, and I like to, I like to promote great things. Um, you know, I'm not going to promote everything, um, but I had a philosophical, you know, and again, it came from Jack Heath, a generosity and and always making yourself available to share and and to to share your knowledge and to share your expertise. Well, you're sharing right now with thousands of people, so it's much appreciated. Yeah, no, it's great. And, again, you know, I, I do love hearing new ideas. Um, as I said, no one's cracked the nut. Um, it's a big nut to crack, and I don't think anyone's got one solution to it. So, um, you know, I might finish with just one example, and it is, again, this um, absolutely gorgeous Steph, um, I Am Mindful. I don't know if you've heard or seen her work at all, but it's a beautiful mindfulness box um, and again, I look at that and she's a young entrepreneur. Um, she's just starting off. She's literally building the boxes in her home with her mum and family and support. Um, and again, she came in to meet with the readiness guys today. And that's a partnership that I think will, will you know, move to something bigger and better for her. Um, but, she, you know, we found each other through a, another mutual connection, introduction. And, and if I if I can help people, I like to help people. Well, you've helped me and so many of our listeners today. So thank you very much again for stopping in. No, it's great to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. 
If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 